0: Disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off the wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. So, what if we could solve the homelessness problem and the energy crisis? And we could do it in a way that those of us who support fossil fuels and personal responsibility are happy, as well as those who are more on the left side of the spectrum uh, finding themselves happy with the outcome as well. There's a guy named Michael Schellenberger, and he used to be a hardcore progressive activist. He's an interesting guy. He actually worked for George Soros. And what he found was most of the stuff that the far left is offering in terms of solutions is crap. It's stupid. It's dumb. And it doesn't work. It's a total failure. And in fact, this was what sort of brought him more to the middle. He still considers himself a liberal. But then again, I consider myself to be a classical liberal. So what are you going to do, right? He's written a couple of really good books. One is called Apocalypse Never. Um, This one is about how the global warming solutions are actually not going to do anything to solve the problem, and they'll also crash the economy in the process, and there needs to be a better way forward, and he actually advocates for nuclear power, which is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. The other book he wrote, and this one just came out, was called San Francisco, and it's about how all of the lefty – Uh, Mostly based in California and major urban centers around the country, policies with regards to homelessness, drug addiction, crime, and other things tend to fall flat on their face. And the subtitle of this one is essentially how leftist policies are destroying America's great cities. It's really powerful. I now live close to Denver. Uh, As you know, we became friends because I lived in Louisville for so long. I'm a Kentuckian, and I've seen what's happened in Louisville in terms of drug addiction, crime, etc. Certainly in Denver, just a few miles up the road from me, it's a terrible situation. Um, So with all of that in mind, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to Michael Schellenberger. He actually was recently on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it was a fascinating conversation. Now, I didn't get him for three hours, but I was happy to get him for about 45 minutes. So I want you to sit back, and I want you to kind of take your partisan hat off if you have one, and just think through what he says. Not everything... You necessarily have to agree with but he's on to something he's on to something about shifting the way we fund helping those that are destitute and those that are a drug addicted these are ways that potentially could save taxpayer dollars down the road and if that's the bottom line we should think about this anyway it's a fascinating conversation so i just want you to have a chance to listen to that but first though guys home equity is at an all-time high right now so if you're thinking about staying put but want to take advantage of that and Make your house your dream house. A great way to do that is to upgrade your kitchen. And the best way to do that is to call my friend Tim Montgomery at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. We did our kitchen with them. They did such a great job that I'm pretty confident that's the reason why our house in Kentucky sold in like about a day. I mean, obviously, there were other elements of that property that were awesome. But when you walked in that house and you saw that beautiful kitchen... It just made people fall in love. It certainly did with us. They also did our master bath, so we used them twice. Here's the thing. Supply chain problems are all over the world, but not at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They have beautiful cabinets in stock ready to go. So if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they can help you out with that as well. Three designers on staff standing by waiting to help make your dream kitchen come true. So call them. Michelle, Kelly, and George all want to talk to you. You can call them at 502-930-3304. That's 502-930-3304. And let your kitchen dream come true today. countertops.com Michael Schellenberger is author of two books. You can get them on Amazon. Uh, the newest one is San Francisco, and it is an Amazon bestseller. Um, It is about the homelessness problem in not only San Francisco, but really, I think, facing a lot of cities. The subtitle of it is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. His other book is also a bestseller on Amazon called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. And he joins us now. Um, Welcome. It's good to talk to you, Michael. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And what's interesting here is I think you and I probably come from two different worldviews. And yet, as I listened to you recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, I was like, I think there's a lot that this guy and I probably will agree on. Um, and maybe there's some we don't agree on, but it's this idea of of having the conversation, I think, that matters most. So uh, it's good to have you. Um, the latest book that you had, let's start with that, San Francisco. You actually live uh, in the Bay Area. Um what is it like living there where you have to have an app to avoid human feces in the street?
1: It's a human tragedy. It's a disaster. It's completely um, avoidable and um, was created by policy. Mm-hmm. But basically you have uh, open air drug scenes, which we euphemistically refer to as homeless encampments, which make it sound like there's little cookouts and s'mores being made. <laughs> right. When in, in In reality, you know, basically 100% of the people in those open drug scenes are suffering from mental illness and or drug addiction, which is itself a form of mental illness. It is a very sad situation. Women are raped in those camps. They are being uh, protected by so-called progressive homeless advocates, really radical left activists who insist that it's just a, that that people are living on the street because they're poor as opposed to from really a very serious illness that is an illness that we know how to treat. We've spent 120 years developing very good ways to, de- to deal with drug addiction. And basically, these activists are preventing us from doing that.
0: You, by the way, just by way of background, I want people to understand that you're you're not a conservative. You're not a right wing guy. You're you're on the left. Um, but you specifically call out progressives for ruining cities in your book. What is the difference in your mind between a progressive and somebody who is on the left? Because I think I think we should probably set that up straight because you consider yourself someone who used to be a progressive. I mean, you you worked heavy in some of these causes that you now write about. Sure. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the mid-1990s, I worked for George Soros's foundation to decriminalize drugs, to uh, advocate for the distribution of clean needles. I worked with uh, Maxine Waters, congresswoman from Watts neighborhood in Los Angeles, to organize civil rights leaders for these policies. I basically got out of that work in the late 90s. At the time, in the year 2000, drug overdose deaths were about 17,000 a year, Well, just to give you a sense of how much things have changed last year, 96,000 people died of drug overdoses or poisonings. Wow. So something got went terribly wrong. And I wanted to understand whether what I had advocated had contributed to that problem or caused it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, um, I still consider myself a liberal, you know, I support various liberal things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I'm fine with the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, You know, one of the most liberal things I advocate, and it's an important part of the story, is that you have to have psychiatric care for everybody. You know, there's just not a free market of schizophrenics out there paying for health care. So it's not something that, you know, and most of the conservatives I interview support the same thing. Right. So I'm trying to find broad agreement. But, yeah, I mean, basically... The other thing I point out in the book, and and the book sort of got started this way, is that I I happen to be in the country of Amsterdam, which is in Northern Europe. Um, It's a very, very wealthy, progressive country. Prostitution is decriminalized. Marijuana is decriminalized. But there's no homeless people. There's nobody sleeping on the street. There's no open drug scenes. And when I asked, I was there, a member of parliament brought me out to give a talk on energy, which is the issue I've been focused on. And she said, you know, you might be interested in talking to my husband. He works on drug policy. And I was like, yeah, I'm interested. Like, I'm like, what's going on in my in San Francisco? Have you been there? And they both, you know, they're very cosmopolitan people. Of course, they had traveled to San Francisco and he just goes, he kind of rolls his eyes and he goes, yeah, look, he's like, you got to have when you're dealing with drug addicts, you have to have carrots and sticks. You can't just give people things without without asking for personal responsibility. And I just remember thinking, oh, man, like, you know, at a certain level, of course, it just ended up being kind of simple that, you know, you is if you give somebody something without any condition, like you give people free housing or money or or drugs or whatever, with no condition of of no, no, no reciprocity with taking any responsibility, um, it's not even a carrot at that point. Right. Um, and if you if you don't have consequences, like if you don't enforce the law, which is what we're doing, we're just not enforcing our laws. Then you are then you then you don't have a stick. And and so basically we just are allowing the drug addiction crisis to run rampant out of some idea that doing so is compassionate when obviously the results on the street show that it's anything but that.
0: And what's interesting is what you report from your own eyes is that that different approach I wouldn't call the approach of Amsterdam a conservative approach at all, but yet this is probably an area where you and I definitely find some common ground. And that's the combination of personal responsibility and compassion, right? I mean, there there's a place for those two things. I mean, it's funny because you talk about how you've evolved, I guess, on some issues where you, you, what I admire about you, Michael, is that you assessed the situation and you said, wait, this isn't working there has to be another approach and when you found another approach you're willing to admit that the first one was wrong and I think one of the problems we have in politics today in America is that people are unwilling to analyze their own personal positions on things to see if the solutions they advocate actually do work in real life and that's kind of what you did in a way is like wait a minute maybe, maybe there's another approach somewhere in between here you know, somewhere in between throwing these people out on their butt, but also giving them everything and leaving them alone to their own devices.
1: Well, you got it. I mean, I, it's funny that, you, you know, you said it just exactly right. I mean, one of the things I would find, I, you know, parents struggle with what do you do about drugs and your kids and and not just liberal parents, you know, conservative parents, all parents do because, um, you know, it's not just liberal kids doing drugs. All sorts of kids do drugs. Experiments. You know, one of the things is that, you know, you sometimes find parents on the one hand, you get parents that kind of go, well, you really can't do anything about it. You know, um, kids will be kids or even when their kids be, get into trouble, they kind of go, well, you can't make anybody quit and everybody has to find their own bottom. That's not really true either. And so you end up with this exaggerated thing where people then, you know, they don't do They don't people don't take action early enough and then the kids get addicted and then the kids don't work they're dedicated you know every 4 hours are doing drugs and then their parents have no choice but to kick their to kick their kids out onto the street i mean that's right. the basic picture of how people end up on the street right is that yeah. they've completely alienated all friends and family and by the way i'm from greeley colorado three of my friends i had three close friends with very serious drug problems two of them are dead mm. Um, one of them was, uh, was briefly a a movie star, um, and became homeless. Um, in fact, all three of them have suffered from homelessness related to their addictions. And yeah, I mean, their parents had no choice, but to basically kick them out, but you end up with this thing where, you know, you have a kind of, and I think it's a metaphor for how America deals with this, where sometimes we're like, well, you're going to go to jail for 20 years. Right. And then sometimes we're like, go ahead and just live in the park and do heroin. Right. That, that right. doesn't make any sense. You have to have it's not that complicated. I mean, if you get arrested and it's clear that, you know, you got arrested because of your addiction, you were stealing from the local drugstore and then selling the products to feed your addiction or you're shooting drugs in public or you're camping in public. These things are illegal. You should be arrested. But when you go before the judge. She or he should have the option to say, "Look, would you rather just go to rehab?" But right. we we stopped we stopped doing that for various reasons, and and yet when you go around the world and you figure out what's worked in Amsterdam or or Lisbon or Vienna or Frankfurt or Zurich, that's what they did.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, and we're talking, by the way, with Michael Schellenberger. He is the author of best-selling books, San Francisco, um, How Why Progressives Ruin Cities, and Apocalypse Never: Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. We'll talk about that in a minute. Your solution to this um, is to bring out the carrot and stick. And you talk about earned housing. You, your your goal in, – and in, let me back up. The other thing that you mentioned, and you kind of mentioned this at the outset, the vast, vast, vast majority of homeless people – is there's a big problem here in Denver. The vast majority of them are, are – it's really a drug addiction problem is what you're saying. Because you, you said that you believe that we actually do a pretty good job of taking care of people that just fall on hard times. The word
1: homeless is a propaganda word, and, I, and that's not my opinion. That's what the experts say. When you look at the, when the word was invented in the 1980s, well, it was, and to be fair, it was used before then, but when it was really promoted in the 1980s, the idea was to, was to mix up two groups of people who should not be mixed up. The first group of people is the mother escaping an abusive husband with her two kids. She doesn't have a drug problem. You know, she's not an addict. She doesn't have mental illness. She's just escaping an abusive husband. She needs somewhere to go for some temporary period. We do a good job helping that woman. Very good. Mm -hmm. Um, And helping people that are sort of temporarily homeless for economic reasons. Her problems are totally different and they require completely different solutions from the, person with schizophrenia or you know which is very serious mental illness or from the 25 year old who got addicted to heroin right you know or as a meth head um i mean i walked around i was in denver i was actually there to give a talk on this i walked around 16th street mall yeah i i was horrified by what i saw i i walked i'm not even going to describe it because it's so I, i see things that are so horrible i don't even tell people but
0: Suffice it to say,
1: this is supposed to be a safe, beautiful walking mall that, you know, I went to this really fancy ice cream store. You know, it was really great. I walk out and I saw things that I shouldn't have seen. (laughs) And I and and so that so the person, you know, who was, uh, you know, the various people that were breaking the law, they should be arrested immediately, brought to the police station. Maybe they can get sentenced then and there if you have a good system or they or, or somewhat later, but they get sentenced and they're offered some time in jail or they're offered rehab. And for a variety of reasons, the radical left and I say the radical left because I don't think you should blame all Democrats for this. In I, there's I agree. A number of Democrats that have been trying to do the right thing. I agree. So it's the radical left who call themselves advocates for the homeless, but they're not. They're not advocates for the homeless. <laughs> they're they're. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a lie, you know, they're not helping anybody. They're helping themselves often. And so it's not that complicated, but, but there was this, you know, really manipulative, I mean, I really manipulative to, cl- to claim, I mean, and, and kind of outrageous. Cause you know, I mean like, come on, like if you spend any amount of time among the so-called homeless, like, you know, it's all about drugs, right? I mean, the Aurora mayor at one point, I think last year, he went and stayed in one of the homeless encampments, and he wrote an op-ed for the for the Denver Post, I think, or somewhere, and he said, uh, "Everybody's on drugs." Right. You know, people even they go, "Who accuse me?" They go, "Well, you're exaggerating. It's not like everybody's." No, no, everybody, like. You don't go and live in one of those tent encampments unless you're suffering severe addiction or mental illness. I mean, there's some people that, you know, you certainly can find mentally ill people that are not on drugs, though it does tend to be that even people with schizophrenia are self-medicating with very, very powerful, very intoxicating and very deadly drugs. Again, 96,000 deaths last year. The opioid crisis, definitely the pharmaceutical companies are partly to blame yeah bad doctors are partly to blame our own coddling culture and the idea that nobody should ever experience pain is partly to blame right but the continued the continuation of these encampments the unwillingness to use carrots and sticks to require treatment is also a big part of the story
0: so again talking with michael schellenberger so your solution would be a choice essentially between Uh, jail time because you arrest these people immediately when they are breaking the law and then they are given a choice, rehab or jail. Which one do you want? And then the rehab would be paid for, essentially. And I don't know about you, but me personally, as a a libertarian-leaning person, I don't like to see government money spent on a lot of different things. But I would rather see money spent on something like rehab than in imprisonment because I know that once you get in the prison system – You're probably never going to get out of it One way or another There's all that recidivism Versus rehab You get back on your feet If you choose to And then you become a productive citizen Ultimately that's cheaper for the taxpayer And it's better for the individual
1: Absolutely Of course it is Plus there's a lot of hard drugs in prison
0: Right That's true It's a good point The goal
1: is The goal should be independence The goal is independence And so I think I think liberals and libertarians Can can agree on that I think everybody can
0: Yeah Yeah And so Yeah,
1: I mean, you kind of go, it's shelter first. Everybody has a right to be sheltered from the elements, but not everybody has a right to their own apartment in downtown Denver. That's different.
0: I thought that that was different too. I I thought it was interesting that you pointed that out, where you differ from a lot of people on the more hard left, where is you don't believe in a right to housing. You say there's a right to shelter, but not a right to housing. You kind of have to earn that housing through that rehab program. Is what you're suggesting.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in fact, when I was in Amsterdam and I shadowed one of the social workers and we interacted with, you know, three different people a woman with an underlying mental illness, um, a man who was, you know, had basically really severe autism, but but was actually very intelligent and they had a job for him that he wasn't going to, and then addicts, they all wanted their own room, right? Understandably. And so, but what the social workers would say is they say, okay, well, if you, you know, start taking your meds, if you start going to work, if you get, if you pass your urine tests to show that you're, you know, sober and abstinent, then we'll get you your own room. So there's always, you always have to give some people, people need to see some hope, right? They need something to aspire to. So often it is, it is a place of their own or, you know, it's often, you know, family reunification, especially if kids have been taken from you because of your mental illness or addiction or crime. So that's the goal. And so there's much more of a sophisticated shades of gray. There's room in between prison and homelessness. There's a lot we can do. I do think, at least in California, it may be slightly different in Colorado, but we do need it to be much more efficient, much more hierarchical system where there's accountability. The model that had has been used in a lot of places is that Governments will basically give grants to nonprofits, and there's not really any accountability—at least, at least not nearly enough. So you end up getting a lot of nonprofits saying, "Yeah, give us a million dollars. We'll go out and have workers go out and do outreach." But then it becomes nobody's responsibility to deal with like the really hardcore addicts who are very difficult—the guys living under the bridges, the people in the encampments. So then you get. Then you finally get the public works department and the police will go and clear the encampment, quote unquote clear the encampment, but you haven't dealt with the people, right? The people themselves, they need some, they need, they need to be confronted and not just moved around, which is what happens now because then, then you're never dealing with their addiction and you're just going to make it somebody else's problem a few months down the road.
0: Yeah. You, uh, you talk a lot about that in, in, uh, your visit with Joe Rogan about the coddling of our society that and, and I, I appreciated your words on that that I think a lot of people because I think you and I are about basically same generation right gen x and gen xers yeah we're, it's gonna be up of to course us we are yeah <laughs> of course we are of
1: course we are because because we were the latchkey kids
0: yes yes we used that word the other day and we we're like who uses that but um, it's funny because, uh, I, 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 made a post on Twitter the other day. I was, I was like, you know, we, we all fell asleep eating Cheetos on the couch, watching but- Beavis and Butthead and woke up and the world was messed up because, um, it's going to be up to us to save it, whether we're from the right or the left. Oh, yeah. Um, so let me ask you this question because the title of your book is San Francisco and the subtitle is why progressives ruin cities. Why do they? Cause you identify the problem. It's all carrot, no stick. But why do they do that?
1: Right. Well that's the that's the that's the million dollar question, right? I mean that's why you need a whole book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's why people need to go um, to Amazon right now and Amazon Prime, nineteen dollars, <laughs> hardcover, San Francisco. Go do it. Amazon.com. I like
1: absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and if you go to environmentalprogress.org org and you make a hundred dollar donation, I'll send you a signed
0: personalized. Ah, copy. sweet. Awesome. I love yeah. it. I love yeah. It. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, um you know, it's funny. I'll I'll tell you what the the last reason I give seven reasons, but okay. the very last reason it, the very last reason is because conservatives and moderates let them.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. i um, ruined
1: cities. So it all comes back at the end. It sort of goes, you know, I, it's, it's mostly on the it's mostly the fault of progressives. They're the ones that have been driving pushing these policies that right. have ruined cities. But but the, but you know, I, I wrote the book in part because moderates. I would consider myself a moderate or a liberal moderate. We haven't been able to answer them when they say what would you do instead and how would you help these people we haven't had a good answer and i wrote san francisco in part to provide the right answer but look i think there's basically two things and they're related i mean the first is just you know we've basically been coddling everybody ourselves our kids ourselves for you know roughly the 150 years since we moved from the country to the city you know people life like Parents were pretty strict back in the old days, as you know, and yeah. it's gotten to the point now where, you know, we just are too, uh, we're just too liberal with our kids. Um, so there's a big part of that. And we're too liberal with people on the street, you know, who go, well, oh, I, you know, but I need to sleep on the sidewalk because I'm because I'm suffering. And we go, oh, OK, you know, as opposed to like, no. And so part of the reason that this affects liberals more than conservatives is that liberals, just tend to be more bleeding heart. Yeah, You know, we just tend to go, conservatives tend to be more like, no dude, you ca- I don't care how, don't give me your story of woe, you can't sleep on the sidewalk. Right. And then I think the other issue is then there's, that there's a separate, but related, but separate, which is there's a political ideology here. And it goes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 1800s through Karl Marx in the, sorry, in the 18th century to Karl Marx in the 19th century to, this, this uh, not as well-known French, philo- French historian, named Michel Foucault, but who is a very important thinker for the ideas. But the idea is basically that society is bad. Society is why people are unequal. Society is why we treat people badly. Society is the cause. And individuals are innocent. And if we just loved each other more and were kinder to each other and had socialism, basically then we wouldn't have all these problems. And so the, cause one of the questions you have, I had is like, why if you, we, if liberals care so much, if we're such bleeding heart people, why are we letting hundreds of people die on the street from drug addiction? That's not compassionate at all. Right. So why is that? And the answer is that the radical left, again, not progressives, I'm sorry, not liberals, but the radical left, or they call themselves progressives now. Um, the radical left, the, the socialists, the anarchists—you know who we're talking about—the the, the homeless advocates—they only care about the victims of the system, not about people that are victims of things like addiction. Or so I have three chapters on crime, by the way. I look at homicides. 30 times more African-Americans are killed by civilians than by police officers. So why do we spend all this time? And the number of people killed by police officers have been going down for 50 years. Thank right. God, right? right. We're right. getting better at policing. So why do why do progressives only care about black people when they're killed by cops and not when they're killed by other black people? Well, it's because, they, because progressives are, are just really focused on the ways in which they think the system – the so-called system i mean what is that exactly we don't know but the the system is evil and the system is represented by police businesses you know yuppies i mean one of the things you would see so much in the literature is homeless advocates saying things like oh well you just don't want somebody sleeping on the sidewalk because you don't want to look at them right and it's like it's like well yeah like none of us like looking at people dying on the street that doesn't that's kind of understandable that nobody likes to look at that right but the implication of it what they're really saying is that they're saying i i really care you really don't care and you're the man you're the system you know you're part of the machine you're everybody knows what this is this is just bad 1960s you know rhetoric basically but it 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 does have a a pedigreed history in the sense of starting with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, going through Karl Marx and finally getting form, you know, you know, formulated by Michel Foucault in the 60s.
0: Interesting. Um. Yeah. And, and I, I really want to encourage people to read your book because we have an issue that is very complicated. It's very difficult and it needs to be dealt with because it is ruining our great cities in this country from Portland to Denver to San Francisco uh, and beyond. Um, Now, I have a couple more minutes with you, so I do want to talk about your other book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. The president is in Europe right now. They're talking climate change. Um, We often see uh, countries put out these vast edicts where by 2050, we're going to have no more fossil-fueled cars on the road, and there's a reason for that because – Nobody cares what's actually going to happen in 2050 right now. It just is a way for politicians to get a layup and get all the accolades without having to deal with the uh, absolute economic devastation such a policy would bring. Uh, the state you live in, California, just basically banned lawnmowers, <laughs> I mean, which is insane. Um, there, there's got to be a happy medium here between keeping our economy afloat, uh, giving people um, – cheap and free energy or not free energy but cheap energy because that's what fuels freedom um, you know and, and and somehow also putting forth some idea of, of protecting the planet and, and saving the environment if we can
1: well yeah I mean look at Colorado it's been a huge natural gas big oil and gas producer the you know really again the radical left has demonized oil and gas. Um, which is crazy because cheap natural gas is why the United States reduced its carbon emissions by 22% since the year 2005. 22% under proposed cap-and-trade climate legislation, which failed in 2010, and under the Paris Climate Agreements, which Obama signed, we were supposed to reduce our carbon emissions by 17%. So we reduced our carbon emissions by 5%, 5 percentage points more, then we, we we were going to under legislation that didn't work simply by fracking. And meanwhile, of course, the petroleum that we get out of shale, you know, the rock formation 5 miles underground, is like the lightest, sweetest crude. It's the best kind of petroleum because it's so it's so free of the a lot of the contaminants that are in other forms of petroleum. So now, did we do that by so did we reduce carbon emissions by becoming poorer? No we reduced carbon emissions by becoming much much richer. I mean, Colorado is a much richer state than when I left 30 years ago. Right. And and so then we said, "Oh, they so then people said, "Oh, climate change means we can't use oil and gas." But that's what that's the idea that was the idea for the last 5 years. And so and they convinced, you know, at first this was a symbolic effort. Most of us were skeptical that you would actually get people to stop investing in oil and gas drilling. And at first it was symbolic, but then it became real and then new investments in exploration. So to some extent, you know, the natural oil and gas industry in the United States had overexpanded in the in the early 2010, say 2010 to 2015. But then from 2015 or 2016 to today was the period of which you would have expected to see new oil and gas exploration and production investments that did not occur and so, when the economy came back this year after COVID last year, we did not have enough oil and gas. So, the United States is shielded from it, but of course, gasoline prices in the United States are are sixty percent higher than they were a year ago. They're the highest they've been in seven years. And Europe and Asia have been having, in the United States, have been having to burn more coal, hmm. which is twice as polluting as as natural gas. Right. So, I, this is really amazing because what it shows is that. Climate activists, of whom I count myself as one because I advocate for nuclear energy and natural gas, but so-called climate activists again, really talking about the radical left that dresses itself up as environmentalists. They actually succeeded in creating a global energy crisis. I mean, mm, it, it's yeah. so it's so amazing. I was the first to report on this, but now most reporters are, you know, are verifying it. That yes, that like we didn't do enough oil and gas exploration so now we're returning to coal it's quite ironic well i think the, pro- the
0: the problem is we don't have a transition plan right like we don't have anything to it's everything is about we're going to cut off fossil fuels which always like you said oddly and we're talking with michael schellenberger it oddly uh excludes natural gas for some reason and then it's like oh i guess we're going to power everything with windmills and solar panels and i i have a friend that works for a major power company and he sent me a text the other day, and he said, I got to thinking the other night, and so I looked at the numbers. If everyone in his neighborhood, just his neighborhood, if 25% of them, one in four people in his neighborhood, suddenly decided to get an electric car, they would all have to you know, plug them in overnight in their house. They'd have to put in a new piece of technology to do that. And the sheer load on the existing power grid would increase to the extent that they would have to rebuild the infrastructure in that entire neighborhood. I don't think people realize that unless you have a way of fueling the power grid, you're not going to be able to charge all those cars. There's there's no transitionary fuel besides fossil fuels. It seems to me that the first most important step we could take is exactly what you suggested. Let's get nuclear because it's clean and it has no emissions. If we If we're worried about how we store it, let's figure out how to do it safely, although you contend we already do know how to do it safely
1: nuclear is not only the safest way to make electricity this is proven by every major scientific study that's ever been done it's literally one of the safest things that we do more people die of walking (laughs) i mean like literally more people die walking walking turns out to be more dangerous than people realize so yeah nuclear has killed maybe a total of 200 people over an 80-year period wow those are all the deaths from chernobyl it's just nothing i mean again ninety-six thousand deaths from drugs last year That's basically four times as many people that die from homicides and three times as many from car accidents. That's just the United States. So nuclear is great. Look, there are these experimental new designs. There was one in uh, Fort St. Vrain, Colorado, when I was a boy, and it was super cool. It couldn't melt down. It used helium gas as the coolant rather than water, which is what we use in most reactors. It was really cool and interesting. It was by General Electric. But it was complicated and they, they, they shut it down early because it was just too complicated to run. You know, we there's most of us think that in the future, most of us that look at these technologies, we think in the future we're going to have jet planes powered with hydrogen fuels and I'll be able to fly from San Francisco to Australia in an hour. It's basically a rocket. Mm-hmm. That's going to be great. But that's, I mean, thats like 100 years away. You know, we, meanwhile, we have the same basic jet technology that we had since World War II. And it's fine. It's better than fine. It's amazing.
0: Well, and so we, we the, also don't have the ne- the innovation to get to that point if we don't have cheap energy now in order to have an economy that fosters that kind of innovation.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, if you don't if you're shutting down your nuclear plants at the demand of climate activists, by the way. <laughs> right. Which makes which makes as much sense as going from natural gas to coal. Um, then you can't have new nuclear. So, you know, you you have to you know, everything gets better. Yeah. and all technologies improve. You just have to do more of them. So the hang up around nuclear really has to do with Cold War fears of the bomb. I think you and I are about the same age, so yeah. we remember the nineteen eighties. Oh yeah. Um, nuclear weapons are scary. Like, that's that's why they work so well. Mm-hmm. That's why they that's why they create peace between nations, because they're so darn scary. Nuclear power plants are not nuclear bombs. That's, right. you know, it's different. Uh, you enrich the fuel to much higher levels with bombs. Nuclear plants, when something goes wrong, the fuel can melt, you know, but it's not a nuclear explosion. So it's just a hang up. A lot of us that grew up, you know, we were we were terrorized about nuclear energy by our parents. Right. And our grandparents, um, you know, and it is fading. I will say. I mean, I'm, I just wrote a piece today for my Substack about why nuclear is coming back. You know, it helps to have a global energy shortage. Right. But I do think there's also been an effort by by some of us to try to, you know, educate the public. My I have a bunch of TED talks on nuclear. And it does seem to be coming back and, and it's been very inspiring. But yeah, it's always it's always hard because there's just some people that are that are sort of in the grip of a phobia
0: around nuclear. I wonder what would happen if we had if we were able to actually power like France powers seventy percent of their power grid with nuclear, if we could get to that level, um, then you might have the infrastructure in place if people did want to switch over to electric cars. You'd have the ability to generate enough power to deal with that cheaply and safely and cleanly. And then you would be talking about a serious transitionary period to a newer, cleaner fuel uh, future. And that that would be that's why I don't really take many politicians on the left serious when they talk about climate change. Because I'm like, you're not you're not talking about real solutions. You're talking out of your butt um, at the far left that just wants you to have command and control of the economy. And that's that's where I differ with them. You know, it's I, I I personally my own personal beliefs about climate change aside, I want clean air and I don't know a single person. That wants dirty air, you know, and so if there was a way we could do this cleaner and cheaply and still provide the same amount of energy that we have so we can have an economy that fosters freedom and, and upward mobility and people being able to build wealth on their own, that would be the best of all worlds. Well, listen, How first of all, real quick, let's go through the ways people can follow you. The Substack, you're a journalist as well, and Substack is a place where a lot of a lot of journalists who are not buying into the corporate media um you know, transcripts, so to speak, are getting some really interesting information out there. So how can people follow you there and and, and explain what it is if somebody doesn't know what a Substack is?
1: Oh, sure. Substack, that's just the name of the website. But if you just Google the words, it's spelled just like it sounds, Substack, Schellenberger, S-H-E-L-L-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. Find me that way. You can also find MD. Those are my initials. I'm not a doctor. Um, At Twitter, is a great way to follow me. Um, But yeah, um, yeah, substacks great, because it allows, you know, uh, I give away my articles for free, but Mm -hmm. it's easy to make it's easy to become a subscriber. I think I'm charging like seven bucks a
0: month. Yeah.
1: And that and 90% of that revenue goes to the writers rather than to substack. Cool. Um, So yeah, Awesome.
0: And then people can get your books on Amazon. I've got it up right here San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, and Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Those are both available on Amazon. Uh, Thanks so much, Michael, for uh, standing up. I know it's got to be difficult as somebody who is a moderate to left person. There's not a whole lot of place for those that actually want to have dialogue about serious solutions in today's red team versus blue team world. And so uh, even if we don't agree on everything, I appreciate that you're out there making intelligent arguments uh, for intelligent solutions. So uh, we need more of that, not less. All right. Thanks for having me. I found the guy fascinating, especially the stuff about nuclear Um, Well, actually, both. I mean, I really think he's a brave guy to be considering himself still a leftist and or at least a liberal rather. He's more of a centrist. But I think he's a brave guy to write this because he comes from that world. I mean, having worked for a guy like uh, George Soros and his foundations, he comes from that far left activist world. And he's seen on the other side of it that these policies simply don't work. So fascinating conversation. Uh, Share it with your friends if you can. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. It was made possible by my friends at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Tim Montgomery and his work crews have a work ethic and a craftsmanship value second to none. That means second to nobody. I've seen them work. I know what their work ethic is. It's why I believe in them. And I also know what the quality of their craftsmanship is. That's also why I believe in them. We had an ugly, unusable island in our kitchen, and they made it usable and beautiful. The work they did, I'm confident, is one of the main reasons why our house sold in less than a day when we put it on the market in Odom County. These guys are fantastic. And they have three designers on staff to help make your dream kitchen come true. George, Kelly, and Michelle are standing by waiting for you to call at 502-930-3304. See some samples of their work at Louisville cabinets and countertops.com And you know we're hearing about supply chain crisis all over the world right now? That's not the case at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They have beautiful cabinets in stock now ready to go. Go to the cabinets section of their website, click on In Stock Cabinets, and look at all the amazing, beautiful styles from modern, like sleek, clean lines to beautiful country style and everything in between, shaker and everything in between. So check them out. You can see all of that online, and they're ready to go. So if you're a contractor, do it yourself, or you just already know what you want, There's not going to be any delays in your project with Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Check them out again, 502-930-3304 or louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com. If you're in Louisville, Odom County, or Southern Indiana, this is the place to go. Check them out again, louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com. And I want to thank you. Thanks for listening. Uh, The podcast has gotten so many downloads, it's really nuts. We're approaching 100,000 which is crazy, and I appreciate you, and I know that the last couple of months we haven't had a whole lot of episodes, but it's coming back. We're getting adjusted to the schedule. Uh, you know, I have my new radio show uh, and that's kind of um, complicated things for a little bit for the last couple of months, but we're we're getting in the flow here. So we're, we're good to go. Anyway, thank you for listening. You can download the podcast and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or iHeart Radio. And then you can share it with your friends. You can carry me around in your pocket. Thanks to Dynamics Audio Productions for their help with the program as well. Um, with the audio side of things And thanks to my co-host and co-executive producer Who we haven't heard from in a while So I'm going to bug him about that Cameron Mills And again, thanks to you Follow me on Twitter It's at Leland Show And at, what is our uh, Twitter on that? At Zone Disruption Sorry, somebody stole the the, uh, zone, uh, the Disruption Zone And then on Instagram It's at Greatly Londo And at The Disruption Zone Thanks for listening I am Leland Conway The Disruption Zone